Chapter eighty five of Varney the Vampire, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume two, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter eighty five. The Hungarian nobleman gets into danger, he is fired at, and shows some of his quality. Considerably delighted was the Hungarian not only at the news he had received from the boy, but as well for the cheapness of it. Probably he did not conceive it possible that the secret of the retreat of such a man as Varney could have been attained so easily. He waited with great impatience for the evening, and stirred not from the inn for several hours. Neither did he take any refreshment, notwithstanding he had made so liberal an arrangement with the landlord to be supplied. All this was a matter of great excitement and speculation in the inn, so much so, indeed, that the landlord sent for some of the oldest customers of his house, regular topers, who sat there every evening, indulging in strong drinks and pipes and tobacco, to ask their serious advice as to what he should do, as if it were necessary he should do anything at all. But, somehow or another, these wiseacres who assembled at the landlord's bidding, and sat down, with something strong before them, in the bar parlor, never once seemed to think that a man might, if he choosed, come to an inn and agree to pay four guineas a week for board and lodging, and yet take nothing at all. No, they could not understand it, and therefore they would not have it. It was quite monstrous that anybody should attempt to do anything so completely out of the ordinary course of proceeding. It was not to be borne, and as in this country it happens, free and enlightened as we are, that no man can commit a greater social offense than doing something his neighbors never thought of doing themselves, the Hungarian nobleman was voted a most dangerous character, and, in fact, not to be put up with. "'I shouldn't have thought so much of it,' said the landlord, "'but only look at the aggravation of the thing. After I have asked him four guineas a week, and expected to be beaten down to two, to be then told that he would not have cared if it had been eight, it is enough to aggravate a saint.' "'Well, I agree with you there,' said another." That's just what it is, and I only wonder that a man of your sagacity has not quite understood it before. Understood what? Why, that he is a vampire. He has heard of Sir Francis Barney, that's a fact, and he's come to see him. Birds of a feather, you know, flock together, and now we shall have two vampires in the town instead of one. The party looked rather blank at this suggestion, which, indeed, seemed rather uncomfortable, probably. The landlord had just opened his mouth to make some remark, when he was stopped by the violent ringing of what he now called the vampire's bell, since it proceeded from the room where the Hungarian nobleman was. "'Have you an almanac in the house?' was the question of the mysterious guest. "'An almanac, sir? Well, I really don't know. Let me see, an almanac. But perhaps you can tell me. I was to know the moon's age.' "'The devil,' thought the landlord. "'He's a vampire, and no mistake.' Why, sir, as to the moon's age, it was a full moon last night, very bright and beautiful, only you could not see it for the clouds. A full moon last night, said the mysterious guest thoughtfully. It may shine, then, brightly to-night, and if so, all will be well. I thank you. Leave the room. Do you mean to say, sir, you don't want anything to eat now? What I want I will order. But you have ordered nothing. Then presume that I want nothing." The discomfited landlord was obliged to leave the room, for there was no such thing as making any answer to this, 
and so, still further confirmed in his opinion that the stranger was a vampire that came to see Sir Francis Barney from a sympathetic feeling towards him, he again reached the bar parlor. "'You may depend,' he said, "'as sure as eggs is eggs, that he is a vampire. "'Hilloa! He's gone off! After him! After him! "'He thinks we suspect him. "'There he goes, down the high street.' The landlord ran out, and so did those who were with him, one of whom carried his brandy and water in his hand, which, being too hot for him to swallow all at once, he still could not think of leaving behind. It was now getting rapidly dark, and the mysterious stranger was actually proceeding towards the lane to keep his appointment with the boy who had promised to conduct him to the hiding-place of Sir Francis Varney. He had not proceeded far, however, before he began to suspect that he was followed, as it was evident on the instant that he altered his course, for, instead of walking down the lane where the boy was waiting for him, he went right on, and seemed desirous of making his way into the open country between the town and Bannerworth Hall. His pursuers, for they assumed that character, when they saw this became anxious to intercept him, and thinking that the greater force they had the better, they called out aloud as they passed a smithy where a man was shoeing a horse, "'Jack Burden, here is another vampire!' "'The deuce there is,' said the person who was addressed. "'I'll soon settle him. "'Here's my wife who gets no sleep of a night as it is, "'all owing to that Barney, who has been plaguing us so long. "'I won't put up with another.' "'So saying, he snatched from a hook on which it hung "'an old fowling-piece, and joined the pursuit, "'which now required to be conducted with some celerity, "'for the stranger had struck into the open country "'and was getting on at a good speed.' The last remnants of the twilight were fading away, and although the moon had actually risen, its rays were obscured by a number of light, fleecy clouds, which, although they did not promise to be of a long continuance, as yet certainly impeded the light. "'Where is he going?' said the blacksmith. "'He seems to be making his way towards the mill-stream.' "'No,' said another. "'Don't you see his striking higher up towards the old ford, where the stepping-stones are?' "'He is, he is!' cried the blacksmith. "'Run on, run on! Don't you see he is crossing it now? Tell me, all of you, are you quite sure he is a vampire and no mistake? He ain't the excise-man, landlord, now is he?' "'The excise-man, the devil! Do you think I want to shoot the excise-man?' "'Very good, then here goes!' exclaimed the smith. He stopped, and just as the brisk night air blew aside the clouds from before the face of the moon, and as the stranger was crossing the slippery stones, he fired at him. How silently and sweetly the moon's rays fall upon the water, upon the meadows, and upon the woods! The scenery appeared the work of enchantment, some fairyland, waiting the appearance of its inhabitants. No sound met the ear, the very wind was hushed, nothing was there to distract the sense of sight, save the power of reflection. This, indeed, would aid the effect of such a scene." A cloudless sky, with stars all radiant with beauty, while the moon, rising higher and higher in the heavens, increasing in the strength and refulgence of her light, and dimming the very stars, which seemed to grow gradually invisible as the majesty of the queen of night became more and more manifest. The dark woods and the open meadows contrasted more and more strongly. Like light and shade, the earth and sky were not more distinct and apart, and the rippling stream that rushed along with all the impetuosity of uneven ground. The banks were clothed with verdure. The tall sedges, here and there, lined the sides. Beds of bulrushes raised their heads high above all else, and threw out their round clumps of blossoms like tufts, 
and looked strange in the light of the moon. Here and there, too, the willows bent gracefully over the stream, and their long leaves were wafted and borne up and down by the gentler force of the stream. Below, the stream widened and ran foaming over a hard stony bottom, and near the middle is a heap of stones, of large stones that form the bed of the river, from which the water has washed away all earthy particles and left them by themselves. These stones in winter could not be seen, they were all under water, and the stream rushed over in a turbulent and tumultuous manner. But now, when the water was clear and low, there were many of them positively out of the water, the stream running around and through their interstices, the water weeds here and there lying at the top of the stream and blossoming beautifully. The daisy-like blossoms danced and waved gently on the moving flood. At the same time they shone in the moonlight, like fairy faces rising from the depths of the river, to receive the principle of life from the moon's rays. Tis sweet to wander in the moonlight at such an hour, and it is sweet to look upon such a scene with an unruffled mind, and to give way to the feelings that are engendered by a walk by the riverside. See, the moon is rising higher and higher, the shadows grow shorter and shorter. The river, which in places was altogether hidden by the tall willow trees, now gradually becomes less and less hidden, and the water becomes more and more lit up. The moonbeams play gracefully on the rippling surface, here and there appearing like liquid silver, that each instant changed its position and surface exposed to the light. Such a moment, such a scene, were by far too well calculated to cause the most solemn and serious emotions of the mind, and he must have been but at best insensible, who could wander over meadow and through grove, and yet remain untouched by the scene of poetry and romance in which he breathed and moved. At such a time and in such a place, the world is alive with all the finer essences of mysterious life. Tis at such an hour that the spirits quit their secret abodes and visit the earth and whirl round the enchanted trees. Tis now the spirits of earth and air dance their giddy flight from flower to flower. Tis now they collect and exchange their greetings. The wood is filled with them, the meadows teem with them, the hedges at the riverside have them hidden among the deep green leaves and blades. But what is that yonder, on the stones, partially out of the water, what can it be? The more it is looked at, the more it resembles the human form, and yet it is still and motionless on the hard stones, and yet it is a human form. The legs are lying in the water, the arms appear to be partially in and partially out, they seem moved by the stream now and then, but very gently, so slightly indeed, that it might well be questioned if it moved at all. The moon's rays had not reached it, the bank on the opposite side of the stream was high, and some tall trees rose up and obscured the moon. But she was rising higher and higher each moment, and finally, when it has reached the tops of those trees, then the rays will reach the middle of the river, and then, by degrees, it will reach the stones in the river, and finally, the body that lies there so still and so mysteriously. How it came there it would be difficult to say. It appeared as though, when the waters were high, the body had floated down, and, at the subsidence of the waters, it had been left upon the stones, and now it was exposed to view. It was strange and mysterious, and those who might look upon such a sight would feel their blood chill and their body creep, to contemplate the remains of humanity in such a place, and in such a condition as that must be in. A human life had been taken. How? Who could tell? Perhaps accident alone was the cause of it. Perhaps someone had taken a life by violent means, and thrown the body in the waters to conceal the fact and the crime. 
the waters had brought it down and deposited it there in the middle of the river without any human creature being acquainted with the fact. But the moon rises, the beams come trembling through the treetops and straggling branches and fall upon the opposite bank, and there lies the body midstream and in comparative darkness. By the time the river is lit up by the moon's rays, then the object on the stones will be visible, then it can be ascertained what appears now only probable, namely, is the dark object a human form or not? In the absence of light it appears to be so, but when the flood of silver light falls upon it, it would be placed then beyond a doubt. The time is approaching, the moon each moment approaches her meridian, and each moment do the rays increase in number and in strength, while the shadows shorten. The opposite bank each moment becomes more and more distinct, and the side of the stream, the green rushes and sedges, all by degrees come full into view. Now and then a fish leaps out of the stream, and just exhibits itself, as much as to say, There are things living in the stream, and I am one of them. The moment is one of awe, the presence of that mysterious and dreadful-looking object, even while its identity remains doubt, chills the heart. It contracts the expanding thoughts to that one object, all interest in the scene lies centered in that one point. What could it be? What else but a human body? What else could assume such a form? But see, nearly half the stream is lit by the moonbeams struggling through the treetops, and now rising above them. The light increases, and the shadows shorten. The edge of the bed of stones now becomes lit up by the moonlight, the rippling stream, the bubbles, and the tiny spray that was caused by the rush of water against the stones, seemed like sparkling flashes of silver fire. Then came the moonbeams upon the body, for it was raised above the level of the water, and showed conspicuously. Of the moonbeams reached the body before they fell on the surrounding water. For that reason, then, it was the body presented a strange and ghastly object against a deep, dark background by which it was surrounded. But this did not last long. The water in another minute was lit up by the moon's pale beams, and then indeed could be plainly enough seen the body of a man lying on the heap of stones, motionless and ghastly. The colorless hue of the moonlight gave the object a most horrific and terrible appearance. The face of the dead man was turned towards the moon's rays, and the body seemed to receive all the light that could fall upon it. It was a terrible object to look upon, and one that added a new and singular interest to the scene. The world seemed then to be composed almost exclusively of still life, and the body was no impediment to the stillness of the scene. It was, all else considered, a calm, beautiful scene, lovely the night, gorgeous the silvery rays that lit up the face of nature, the hill and dale, meadow and wood and river, all afforded contrasts strong, striking, and strange. But strange, and more strange than any contrast in nature, was that afforded to the calm beauty of the night, and placed by the deep stillness and quietude imposed upon the mind by that motionless human body. The moon's rays now fell upon its full length, the feet were lying in the water, the head lay back, with its features turned towards the quarter of the heavens where the moon shone from. The hair floated on the shallow water, while the face and body were exposed to all influences from its raised and prominent position. The moonbeams had scarcely settled upon it, scarce a few minutes, when the body moved. Was it the water that moved it? It could not be, surely, that the moonbeams had the power of recalling life to that inanimate mass, that lay there for some time still and motionless as the very stones on which it lay. 
it was endued with life. The dead man gradually rose up and leaned himself on his elbow. He paused a moment like one newly recalled to life. He seemed to become assured he did live. He passed one hand through his hair, which was wet, and then rose higher into a sitting posture, and then he leaned on one hand, inclining himself towards the moon. His breast heaved with life, and a kind of deep inspiration or groan came from him as he first awoke to life, and then he seemed to pause for a few moments. He turned gradually over till his head inclined down the stream. Just below the water deepened and ran swiftly and silently on amid meads and groves of trees. The vampire was revived. He awoke again to a ghastly life. He turned from the heap of stones, he gradually allowed himself to sink into deep water, and then, with a loud plunge, he swam to the center of the river. Slowly and surely did he swim into the center of the river, and down the stream he went. He took long but easy strokes, for he was going down the stream, and that aided him. For some distance might he be heard and seen through the openings in the trees, but he became gradually more and more indistinct, till sound and sight both ceased, and the vampire had disappeared. During the continuance of this singular scene, not one word had passed between the landlord and his companions. When the blacksmith fired the fowling-piece, and saw the stranger fall, apparently lifeless, upon the stepping-stones that crossed the river, he became terrified at what he had done, and gazed upon the seeming lifeless form with a face on which the utmost horror was depicted. They all seemed transfixed to the spot, and although each would have given worlds to move away, a kind of nightmare seemed to possess them, which stunned all their faculties, and brought over them a torpidity from which they found it impossible to arouse themselves. But when the apparently dead man moved again, and when finally the body, which appeared so destitute of life, rolled into the stream and floated away with the tide, their fright might be considered to have reached its climax. The absence of the body, however, had seemingly, at all events, the effect of releasing them from the mental and physical thraldom in which they were, and they were enabled to move from the spot, which they did immediately, making their way towards the town with great speed. As they got near, they held a sort of council of war as to what they should do under the circumstances, the result of which was, that they came to a conclusion to keep all that they had done and seen to themselves, for, if they did not, they might be called upon for some very troublesome explanations concerning the fate of the Hungarian nobleman, whom they had taken upon themselves to believe was a vampire, and to shoot accordingly, without taking the trouble to inquire into the legality of such an act. How such a secret is likely to be kept when it is shared amongst seven people, it is hard to say. But, if it were so kept, it could only be under the pressure of a strong feeling of self-preservation. They were forced individually, of course, to account for their absence during the night at their respective homes, and how they managed to do that is best known to themselves. As to the landlord, he felt compelled to state that, having his suspicions of his guest aroused, he followed him on a walk that he pretended to take, and he had gone so far that at length he had given up the chase, and lost his own way in returning. Thus was it, then, that this affair still preserved all its mystery, with a large superadded amount of fear attendant upon it. For, if the mysterious guest were really anything supernatural, might he not come again in a much more fearful shape, and avenge the treatment he had received? The only person who felt any disappointment in the affair, or whose expectations were not realized, 
was the boy who had made the appointment with the supposed vampire at the end of the lane, and who was to have received what he considered so large a reward for pointing out the retreat of Sir Francis Barney. He waited in vain for the arrival of the Hungarian nobleman, and, at last, indignation got the better of him and he walked away. Feeling that he had been jilted, he resolved to proceed to the public-house and demand the half-crowns which had been so liberally promised him. But when he reached there, he found that the party whom he sought was not within, nor the landlord either, for that was the precise time when that worthy individual was pursuing his guest over meadow and hill, through brake and briar, towards the stepping-stones on the river. What the boy further did on the following day, when he found that he was to reap no more benefit for the adventure, we shall soon perceive. As for the landlord, he did endeavor to catch a few hours' brief repose, but as he dreamed that the Hungarian nobleman came in the likeness of a great toad, and sat upon his chest, feeling like the weight of a mountain, while he, the landlord, tried to scream and cry for help, but found that he could neither do one thing nor the other, we may guess that his repose did not at all invigorate him. As he himself expressed it, he got up all of a shake, with a strong impression that he was a very ill-used individual indeed, to have had the nightmare in the daytime. And now we will return to the cottage where the Bannerworth family were, at all events, making themselves quite as happy as they did at their ancient mansion, in order to see what is there passing, and how Dr. Chillingworth made an effort to get up some evidence of something that the Bannerworth family knew nothing of, therefore could not very well be expected to render him much assistance. That he did, however, make what he considered an important discovery, we shall perceive in the course of the ensuing chapter, in which it will be seen that the best hidden things will, by the merest accident, sometimes come to light, and that, too, when least expected by any one at all connected with the result. End of chapter 85